join me in prayer? May the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Throughout the the many years of history, uh, different cultures at different times and in different places have upheld different virtues as kind of like the most important in their kingdom or in their realm, in their society. And these vary pretty widely at times. Uh, For example, the, the ancient Greeks could have summed up their highest virtue in the word arete, which simply translated means excellence. Whatever it was you did, you were to strive for excellence. And this is what gave your life meaning. This is what made your life worthwhile. If you were to jump over to the classic Romans, though, you'd see something a little bit different. Things like bravery and and personal honor, usually things won on the battlefield, were right there at the top of their list, their hierarchy of virtues. Some of these things widely, in, uh, vary pretty widely, though. In, in some cultures, it's uh, one's loyalty, their dedication to their family or their tribe, which is esteemed as greatest virtue. In others, it's extreme asceticism, self-denial, which is upheld as the, the greatest virtue one can achieve. Sometimes it's just plain old power, exerting the most control and the most influence over the most people and the most land and the most stuff that you can. Well, here in 21st century America, we also have our hierarchy of supposed values and virtues. And I would suggest that right near the top, we have one that's, that's kind of like a, a, a double-sided coin, where on the one hand, we esteem it very highly to avoid pain, the avoidance of, of things that cause us displeasure and discomfort. And on the other side of that coin, very highly valued, is the pursuit of pleasure, of the things that we think will make us happy. And if you want evidence of this, I would... Uh, suggest that you turn on your television at some point today, not to watch all the great programming that I'm sure is on it, but to watch the commercials. And when you do, I want you to count how many commercials you see for different medications or kind of medical adjacent products, things that are sometimes designed to alleviate, if not take away our pain, our discomfort altogether, maybe even sometimes just designed to uh, remove or gloss over some perceived ugliness that we have that makes us uncomfortable on the inside when we go out in public. And then on the other side, you could also probably count up the, the number of commercials you see for things that are meant to entertain you ranging from kids' toys to games to apps on your phone to TV shows and movies and different locales that you absolutely have to visit. And why? Because these are the things that will entertain you and that entertainment will bring you pleasure. It will bring you happiness. Well, to one degree or another, we are all products of our culture. And so it's also true that that some of these American virtues or American values have found a way of seeping into the lifeblood of the church and into the lifeblood of Christians. We see it, for example, in the 
prosperity gospel movement that's grown pretty popular over the past half century or so. This idea that God will bless you tremendously, your finances, your health, whatever it is, if you just believe deeply enough and and pray hard enough. We see evidence of it in American Christianity's seemingly seeming willingness, I guess, to, to embrace what God calls sin. After all, wouldn't, wouldn't God at the end of the day really just want you to be happy? Right? Self-denial? Come on. Surely God has evolved beyond all that old-fashioned stuff. We see it in the tendency of, of Christians to almost like look for, for heaven on earth through the advancement of political movements or the enacting of, of certain laws, right? And why? So that other people around us will look like us and talk like us and act like us. And that's a setting that's going to be a lot more comfortable and pleasant for me to be a part of. Really, all of these things, though, stem from the same misunderstanding that Jesus' disciple Peter exhibits in our gospel lesson today. And really, it wasn't just Peter. This was a misunderstanding that all of the disciples had. Peter was just like the most forthright about it. You see, they believed that Jesus, that the Messiah was there to establish an earthly kingdom, that he would return the the kingdom of Israel back to its former glory. They then, as his closest friends and most loyal followers, would have positions of authority when Jesus came into his own, when he came into that kingdom. But God's vision for the church and for disciples is very different than that. God's vision for his church is not one in which we pursue pleasure and power, in which we go chasing after our personal goals and our ideas of happiness at all costs. Rather, God's vision for his church is one which, above all, embraces the cross. And as we read through our verses today, we are going to unpack what this means and how it impacts our lives in tremendous, even eternal, ways. So we're going to start out here reading just the the first three verses, starting at Matthew 16, verse 21. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said, this shall never happen to you. Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Now, if you were to read through the Gospels, recording the the life, the history of Jesus, I don't know that you would find a harsher rebuke than what Jesus speaks here to Peter. It's hard to become harsher than calling, it's it's hard to be harsher than to call somebody Satan, right? 
Why, though? Why does Jesus do that? It's because Peter was speaking the language of Satan, who will always try to convince you to trade away a focus on the eternal for a focus on the temporary. Right? Peter and those other disciples believed that Jesus was there to establish this kingdom of Israel. They thought they would receive these positions of authority. Their vision of Jesus and what Jesus was there to do simply did not jibe with what Jesus was telling them here about death and a cross. How would they reign with Jesus or beneath Jesus if he was executed? No, that idea of the cross was just too unpleasant to them. And that's what what brings us to our first key point here. It's because the sinful nature wants all crown and no cross. But before we start bashing the disciples or thinking that this is a problem that that 12 people had 2,000 years ago, if we give ourselves a good, long, hard look, an honest look in the mirror, we have to admit that we do likewise pretty frequently. That so often we want all the good things of God, the good things, the blessings of Jesus, without the hard, unpleasant, self-effacing, difficult things. Right? We, we want a God with the power to answer prayers, but we don't always care so much for a God who says no to my prayers. We want a God who will give us heaven when we die, but we don't necessarily have so much use for a God who isn't willing to ease my suffering and my hardship here and now. We want that God of full and free forgiveness, but we don't always care so much for a God who tells us to leave our sin in the dust far behind us. We want the God who who loves unconditionally and selflessly without also daring to ask that we exhibit those things ourselves to others. Peter simply could not see how suffering and pain and loss could be a part of the equation. It was unthinkable to him. But it's oftentimes pretty unthinkable to us as well. And if you've ever found yourself bitter, even, even angry at God for the circumstances of your life, if you've ever found yourself wandering around with this kind of woe-is-me attitude as one of God's people, that's kind of the evidence that, that we do struggle with this. And yet Jesus could not be clearer that the path of discipleship and God's vision for the church is one which lies through the cross. Let's finish this reading now from Matthew 16. Then Jesus said to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? 
And this brings us right away to our our other key point today. The path of discipleship always follows the same road. First, the cross. Then, the crown. There is no deviation from this pattern. If so, then it's discipleship in someone or something other than Jesus. Now, before you start to think that, that this sounds pretty unreasonable, that, that it's a, a pretty hard thing that Jesus is saying here to, to lug around a cross with us, it's very important for us to remember that Jesus puts his money where his mouth is, so to speak. That Jesus is, in fact, the embodiment of what it means to carry one's cross. We see this in his denial of his heavenly home in order to become homeless here among us. We see it in in his becoming misunderstood by, by nearly everybody around him, including his best friends, his mom, his siblings. We see this embodiment of cross-carrying even in the miracles that he performs, miracles that he never performed for his own glory or on his own behalf. In fact, not even when he was starving in the desert did he do this. No, but miracles that he always, always did for the sake of, for the welfare of those around him. We see this in his willingness to preach the truth, even when he knew that in doing so, he was inviting the scorn, the ridicule, the hatred of his countrymen upon himself. Even the scorn of people who once called themselves his disciples. In fact, Jesus embodies this idea of cross-carrying so much that he even stayed the course when it meant picking up his own literal object of execution. Still, Jesus went to that cross to suffer and die on a cross that he did not deserve. And why? To pay for the sins, to pay for the entire punishment of people who did not deserve him. And so if we want to know what God's vision is for the church, if we want to know where the the path of discipleship begins, we need to know that it first begins with this cross, with the cross of Jesus and the Savior who hung upon it. Not even carrying our own crosses brings us freedom and forgiveness. This is what we find solely in Jesus, in the Savior that hung upon it. That call to embrace discipleship first means embracing Him as our Savior. But it also does mean embracing Him as Lord. The Lord who tells us now to go and pick up our own crosses and follow him. He does not give this as an optional part of discipleship. No, he says this is an absolutely necessary component which comes naturally with being one of his people. Carrying that cross then means having a willingness to suffer the scorn, the hatred of the world for the sake of his name. 
carrying that cross means saying no to those things that God calls sin, and that when we fall into temptation that we repent of this sin, not stubbornly cling to it or even insist upon it as our right. Carrying the cross means sacrificing of ourselves, our time, our belongings for the the welfare and the happiness, especially the eternal happiness of others. Carrying our crosses means spending time in God's word and in Bible study and in prayer when our flesh would so much rather get lost and wrapped up in all that mindless entertainment that we think is going to bring us so much pleasure and so much happiness. Maybe it would help us, though, to really think about the picture that Jesus is using here. This picture of carrying the cross. I think sometimes we tend to to have a a misunderstanding about what Jesus is talking about. Sometimes I I think we tend to think of the cross as like this big, heavy thing, and we've got to drag it around through life with us. That's not really what Jesus is going for, and it's not how his original audience would have understood it. They would have seen that cross as an instrument of execution, of agonizing, painful death. And as Jesus calls us to carry our crosses, he is calling us to nothing less than that. The death and the burial of that old self along with all of the old godless and self-centered ways. It's also important for us to remember, though, where this cross leads. Yes, Jesus' cross led him to death and burial. But Jesus' cross is unique in that it also leads to resurrection and to glory. And the same thing is true for those who follow as his disciples. Yes, discipleship means carrying our cross. Yes, it means the death and the burial, which is an agonizing thing at times, of that old self. But at the infinite end, it also means glory. And I got to tell you today, my brothers, my sisters, that glory will be so so worth it. In fact, it will outweigh by far anything you might have hoped to gain or keep a hold of by laying down your cross, laying down his cross, and walking away from it. That's really what Paul was driving at in that passage from Romans that we read earlier when he said, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. And maybe I can use a little illustration to to help understand, to help us understand uh, what it was that Paul meant here. Uh, Here in, in one hand, I've got a little Kleenex. In the other hand, we've got this big fat blue hymnal. Which of these things weighs more? The hymnal does, right? But wait a second. Did any of you bring your scale to check? 
How can you be confident? You haven't weighed it. I mean, it's silly, right? It's not even worth going through the trouble. It's not worth comparing. The hymnal outweighs this little Kleenex by far. And that's what Paul is driving at here. Do you ever wonder whether all this cross-carrying, the pain, the suffering, is really worth what's coming at the end? Is all this self-denial, saying no to those sins that your flesh so badly wants to dive into, will it really be worth it for some picture of heaven that we haven't even set our own two eyes of flesh on yet? You would not be the first people in history to wrestle with that question. In fact, Paul knew that he was writing to people who wrestled with that very question in their hearts. And that's why he gives us this clear and plain answer. Guys, gals, it is not worth comparing the two. And when you arrive at that that first moment in heaven with the the short years of the cross in the rearview mirror and an eternity's worth of wearing that victor's crown sitting right in front of your face, you won't doubt it for a moment. There will be no question that all of the pain, all the hardship, all the suffering was worth it by far and would have been even if you had suffered 10,000 times as much. Yes, God's vision for the church, his vision for, for, for discipleship means embracing that cross and everything that goes with it. But it also means embracing the glory. The glory of resurrection and of new life. Forever in heaven at our Savior's side. Amen.